Hello, fellow humans. And welcome to the Creatures Podcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Emily. And here we are for our second episode. Number two. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> so, f- so for this episode's drink, I made some homemade matcha latte vanilla. And my brother has provided some almost expired donuts. So, before we get into today's case, um, I was talking to a friend about the Coleman family, and I had this big epiphany that it's eerily similar to the Chris Watts and um, the Watts family case, because both of the dads' names were Chris, which is just weird, and they both had mistresses that they, like, wanted to be with more than their wife and kids, which I think is... So, so two Chris's, yeah. individually, was like, hey, I'm not about this, let's start a new family, and then decided yeah. to be, like, the worst person ever. Yeah, maybe it's a good thing I broke up with my ex, because his name was Chris. <laughs> so, maybe I escaped something really If bad. anyone here is named Chris, do I'm better. just kidding. I'm he just joking. A, he was a great guy. Today's case... We are going to be talking about uh, United, one of the United States' youngest serial killers. His name is Harvey Miguel Robinson. He was born on December 6th, 1974, making him a Sagittarius. One of the um, less talked about Zodiacs. Yeah. More calmer? Yeah. Like my, mom, my mom's a Sagittarius. And so is my friend. I have a couple of friends that are Sagittarius. I thought you were staring at the Squishmallow. Maybe he's a Sagittarius. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) He was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania to his father, Harvey Rodriguez Robinson, who was a jazz musician. Jazzy. Yeah. And Allentown, quite close to us. I was actually... Too close. Too freaking close. (laughs) I was on a date in Allentown today. (laughs) Dang! (laughs) I actually told her about this case, and she was like, that's really cool. She's like, mmm, latte. Hey, murder. <laughs> For yeah. <laughs> I did find his mother's name, but she's tried to distance herself from her son, so I'm not going to disclose it for her privacy. Honestly, at least it's not like the last one where the parents were like, our sweet boy would never. Yeah. So he had a half-brother named George Robbins, and his childhood wasn't easy. His father was a known alcoholic who was violent, never towards him, but he was physically abusive towards his mom. So that's another reason why she distanced herself. His mother left after two and a half years of marriage and took Harvey Miguel because she didn't want her kids growing up in the toxicity of Harvey Rodriguez Sr., which really great mom, great mom, but like she tried and it just didn't work out. I know. It's so unfortunate. Like, it's it's horrible, like, for parents to see their children die before them. Like, imagine having to watch your child... Like, go to prison? Go to prison, do horrible things, and just be like... That... I, yeah, I can't imagine. I feel like there's some kind of survivor's guilt in there as well. I know there is, because parents have come out and um, talked about how, like, they wish they did better if there was something they, they could have done differently saw the signs mm, if exactly. there were any they lived in east allentown on 709 north kearney street on the note of his father being abusive he was convicted of killing his mistress marlene e perez 
who was only 27. She had beaten her face and head so severely that she was unrecognizable. He was charged with manslaughter and sent, sentenced to 6 to 12 years. So that isn't today's case, but that just goes to show what he was growing up around. What he was exposed to. Exactly. And he probably idolized his father to an extent. He did. He absolutely adored his father. I think I even have it written in here that, like... And he was convicted of this murder. Yes. When he was a child. That's Yes. Now, the worst part is, though, even though his mother left and they were divorced and he was abusive... He was not charged with any of that, so he still had parental rights, and Harvey Miguel visited him uh, every other week on the weekends, I believe it was. Yes, that sounds about right for a lot of custody cases. His dad moved to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and that is when he would visit him every two weeks. According to his mother, when he'd come back, he was uncontrollable. So his dad had absolutely no rules like it was total anarchy so he wait he wasn't in prison his father was convicted in 1963 he was born in 1977 okay or 1974 excuse me i get in some cases that like people are able to get time off of their sentence but if you beat your mistress to death i feel like you should serve that full 12 to the point where she couldn't be recognized yeah i feel like it should have been more i think it should have been more than manslaughter but yeah I don't really know the details of that trial. His dad's house had no rules, but his mom was a good mom and had rules. I don't know what the rules were, were, but I would hope and I would assume that they were, you know, reasonable. Just there to protect him, make him a good citizen. Yeah, with a lot of, like, divorce cases, whether or not the father is a criminal, it's usually, like, one parent where you go on the weekends is, like, the fun house, and, like, that kid will try and... Like, and they'll have all the fun, it's all the weekends, so the parents don't have to go to work. Mm -hmm. And then they'll, like, not resent, but they'll see the other parent as less fun because they have to go to school and they have to do rules and stuff like that. Child of divorce. That's so unfortunate to see that happen. His mom recalled one time when Harvey Miguel threw a soda can out the window, and then she scolded him for littering, and he's just replied, Dad throws his beer cans out the window. So, littering, DUI, manslaughter, his dad's a piece of shit. And this kid is getting taken down the wrong path. Due to him being a minor at the time, I don't know what this was for, but Harvey Miguel was first charged at age nine with something. In school, he was athletic, popular, and intelligent. He was on the wrestling team at Harrison Morton Middle School, and his coach later testified and said that he had above-average strength. That's scary. It is scary. Oh, that's scary. Like, how popular he was. It's always the charismatic ones. That's the worst part. Mm-hmm. At a young age, he showed signs of being a sociopath and a severe conduct disorder. It made him not know right from wrong, and he had a severe problem with authority. He had violent outbursts that grew in intensity with age. Could have been helped if he went to, like, therapy. Mm-hmm. Maybe the mom couldn't afford it. There's always that, because healthcare is expensive. Expensive. This was the 80s. That was not, okay, you know. Yeah. I didn't think about the year. He grew Ugh. up in the 80s. In 1989, a pregnant teacher requested a social worker be present when Harvey M- Miguel was in her class. Something he said or did made her wary and afraid. And at age 14, he got into a fist fight with a male social worker where Harvey Miguel swung and wrestled him. I was 
this is what this is a social worker, not, not not a teacher. But even now, like teachers are just supposed to like take kicks and punches from students. Quite literally. It's yeah. It's not. It's a really tough situation, and I feel so bad for teachers, because kids are mean. Kids are violent if they're like having a fit, and they can't do anything about it. People don't like parents don't trust teachers anymore. I know it's hard. I'm an ed major. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Harvey dropped out of high school in what I believe was his sophomore year, and on the streets, he was known as Miggy. Miggy. Yeah. Like M-I-G-E-G-Y? Yes. Like Miggy Iggy. Iggy Iggy. Like Iggy Azalea. (laughs) Iggy Azalea. (laughs) He was Iggy Azalea. (laughs) This is his first crime. In 1990, at age 15, Harvey Miguel removed the screen window of 13-year-old Leslie Gerhardt. He beat her with a brick, but Leslie had a friend staying the night and luckily survived the attack, and Harvey Miguel just ran out the window that he came through. Thank God she had a friend there. I know, but, like, he is unhinged. Did it come out of nowhere, or was it, like, quote-unquote friend from school? I have no idea. He was two years older than her, so it's possible that he knew her at the middle school, but there's- I couldn't find anything to say that, like, they definitely knew each other. That's terrifying. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So now we are unfortunately going to be talking about our first victim. I'm going to talk about what happened, and then I'm going to go into her life. In 1990- so here is where we're going to be getting into um, his first victim- On August 7th, 1992, 29-year-old Joan Burghardt was getting ready for bed in her East Allentown apartment at 1430 East Gordon Street. It's like, I've driven on that road. That is insane. Mm. On topic of the first um, assault victim, not murder victim, the beating with the brick. He just grabbed anything he could. And it made me think of the father who... I hate saying the word beat. It's such a vol- it's such a sad word. Um, but the mistress. Yeah. Connections? It's, I definitely think so. His violence just grew with age and I it it's clear his dad was not a good influence and I can only assume that he fueled that anger that was in him. Mm-hmm. Jones set up a bowl for cereal, coffee filters, and a mug for the morning. She took her nightly medication and set out her morning medication, and she kept a calendar in her dining room where she would X out each day, and Friday, August 7th, had been crossed off. She was getting ready to go to bed, Mm -hmm. finishing her day. Harvey Miguel spotted her undressing in her first floor apartment window, and he got into her apartment by removing the screen to a window in the back. So it's like a theme? Mm-hmm. Definitely a theme. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was, like, in the summer or something. He stalked his victims, too. Um, so he knew her routine. Ew. She was sitting in her loveseat in the living room when Harvey Miguel struck her with an unknown blunt object. Uh, trigger warning. Mentions of sexual assault. He raped her repeatedly and then continued to beat her, and he left her battered body in her apartment. During the attack... He turned on her TV stereo volume very loud, and he turned the fan on high to muffle out her screams. And when he left, he left them on. 
Damn. <sighs> He's smarter than the other Chris. <laughs> smarter than the other dude, which sucks. Yeah. Unfortunately, he is, he evades police like a few times, which is horrible. But we'll I, get into that. Poor girl. When Joan didn't show up for work, she wasn't ans- and she wasn't answering her parents' calls. Everyone knew that something was wrong. On Sunday, which was two days later, her parents rushed from Palmerton, Pennsylvania, to Allentown, which is a roughly 40-minute drive. Okay. Her mother told her husband, quote, if we see her car, then we know she's dead. Which, to just drive to her house knowing, like, she knew something bad happened. Like a mother's intuition type mm-hmm. of thing. That's... And we're going to get into her life a little bit more, and they had reason. Um, seemed like she was a very organized person, which how you were mentioning her nightly routine. Mm-hmm. And seemed like everyone knew her very well. And if Definitely. she wasn't answering calls, then something was very wrong. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, this, this, it's, it's really rough to, because her mom and her dad talked about her a lot. They went and, like, did interviews a lot. They really, like, just talked about their daughter. So I got a lot of information on her, luckily. It's good that they were so public with it, because they probably helped a lot in Mm -hmm. the finding of him. Oh, definitely. When they arrived, the police were already there, and her mother said, quote, I knew then something horrible had happened. Joan's neighbor called the police after they hadn't seen or heard from her, and they also were complaining about the TV being so loud because they had knocked on her door multiple times asking her, like, to turn it down, but with no response, they started to get very concerned. Five days before her murder, she reported a break-in where only $50 was taken off the dresser. Police and myself believe that this was Harvey Miguel scoping out her place because he stalked his victims. Yeah. It seemed, you said earlier that he stalked his victims and... Mm-hmm. <sighs> Police found a package of vanilla cookies and dried milk that she... She definitely, like, poured milk for herself and was, like, in the middle of eating it. She was making milk and cookies? I know. In her bedroom, they found a black pair of men's shorts with semen on them. They tested it later, and it matched Harvey Miguel. I take it back. He's not smart. Good thing he's not smart. No, he's not smart at all. That's the worst part that it took, Ugh. unfortunately, a while. The fact that he has more than I any know. victims, but the fact that... <sighs> I know. Her work shirt had blood smears that Harvey Miguel likely wiped the murder weapon off with. The lens of her glasses were found under the love seat, and the frame was on the cushion. Nothing was stolen, which showed that Joan was the target and nothing else. Her parents held a memorial at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Palmerton. She hoped to marry someday, and her mother fought tears as she said, quote, What a wonderful person she was. She was caring, generous, loving, and she was a fighter. She's a great loss to us, her father said. She had talents. She had a lot going for her. She had a great deal of potential which unfortunately was never realized and ended in this tragic fashion. Like, she was young. She was only 29. (sighs) Before we get into her life, I'm just going to go over a bit of, like, how she was found and a bit of the autopsy, so, um, trigger warning. She was found partially clothed on the floor. Her white shorts were pulled off and thrown nearby. There were bottles of nail polish strewn about, and she had defense wounds on her arms. So she definitely fought hard. Which makes it even... I'm just very just sad listening to this. Oh, I know. Like, I feel like it's just a different feel when someone's telling it to you than, like, reading it or... When you're researching it, you spend so much time 
learning about it that not that I ha- don't have any sort of empathy for them, but you kind of get adjusted to the case. Yeah. It's... You're expecting the details more is a better way to put it. Desensitized and expecting. Yeah. There are defense wounds as well from her trying to block the blows to her head. Uh, she was still clutching her hair and the broken arm of her glasses were found under her leg. Police believe she was first struck in her chair from because of due to a head outline in a afghan on the chair. Blood sprayed 10 feet up to the ceiling. Jesus Christ. Her autopsy concurred that she suffered 37 head wounds, possibly more. So this was brutal. Now, police searched for her murderer, but he had been sent to a juvenile correctional facility for charges of robbery that were completely unrelated to her case, and he served eight months. He- so, yeah, you're right, so it was probably theft earlier in his life. Oh, yeah. And he's just, like, so he, like, murdered this poor girl, and then he went and go stole- went to steal something. Mm-hmm. Like, had no restraint. No care. No care, no- he didn't give a crap. He didn't care at all. No consequences for his actions. Or so he thought. Yeah, so he thought. Now I want to talk about Joan Burkhart because she was a amazing person and she was a fighter. She was born on, in 1962 to Stanley and Gladys Burkhart. Those are really old names, but like Gladys is such a cute name. I know. <laughs> She grew up the youngest of three in New Jersey, and when she was one and a half, her family moved to Palmerton, Pennsylvania, because her father got a job as a research chemist, which is pretty cool. Sounds rich. (laughs) (laughs) She was a Girl Scout, and she enjoyed entertaining her family and classmates by playing the piano. She- A musician. Mm Mm-hmm. She loved the outdoors, and her brother took a picture of her, and it's of a very young Joan- She's wearing a striped hat, or sorry, a striped shirt and a hat, and she's sniffing a flower, and her parents still have it hanging up in their stairwell. Oh. She was artistic, and her parents also kept a watercolor painting of a clipper ship that she did, and they keep it framed upstairs. Like a, like a plane? I have no idea what a clipper ship is. Like, it's either like a, like a, like a boat? It's either or a boat like a or a plane, plane but, but a watercolor really cool. of a plane, that's... I don't know. Mechanics and watercolor, usually they don't mix, but I feel like if it's done, then that'd be really cool. Mm -hmm. She was shy, yet intelligent, and she excelled in school, and she won a statewide spelling bee in the seventh grade. Her senior year of high school, she won an essay contest sponsored by a union, and she was awarded an academic achievement award. She was in a bunch of clubs, including the AV club, and she was also a staff member for the yearbook. She ran on the track team and she enjoyed skiing. She was popular in the neighborhood for babysitting and kids loved her because she would bring games up from her house to entertain the kids. Oh, that's really sad. Like, imagine this happening and then, like, kids being like, hey, where's... I know. <sighs> this was when she was a kid. She was babysitting, but... Yeah, but she like, was a She was a caretaker till the end. But, like, people remember, like, babysitters. Oh, yeah. In intensely remember mm-hmm. part of development she graduated from palmerton high with honors in 1980 
And Melissa Moser, who was a former classmate, said, quote, She was very bright. She was a real sweet girl. Despite how wonderful and accomplished she was, she had an immense trauma and mental health struggles. Um, trigger warning for sexual assault. At age 10, while walking home from the pool, she was sexually assaulted at knife point by a stranger. So, it happened for her twice, and it could have it could have ended her life years before this. Unfortunately. There was, like, probably like some kind of shadow just following her. That is horrific. Mm-hmm. She was extremely upset, and she was scared that she committed a sin. And her family was, like, they were great. They're, her parents are the sweetest. They reassured her that she didn't do anything wrong, and they brought her to a priest to help, like, calm her down and, like, assure that she didn't commit a sin, she was okay. Especially in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Like, they didn't talk about anything. Our generation, like, the recent generations, were finally talking about stuff. Right. And... So the fact that she, like, talked to her parents about that, just, like... Shows yeah. how brave she was. Some people take it to their grave. Some people just stick with that trauma and never say anything. Mm-hmm. It's awful. I hope she was able to work through that. A little bit. She was quiet, but she continued to kick ass in school. In her adult years, she struggled with low self-esteem and depression. Her mother said she definitely missed track and missed winning, and she missed all of her teammates like cheering her on. It was good for her self-confidence. And she still kept her medals displayed on her wall in her apartment. After graduating high school, she studied secretarial science at Lehigh County Community College and received her associate's degree in 1982. She got a job at the adult probation office at Lehigh County Courthouse in Allentown. She joined the art museum, a hiking club, and she worked out at the local gym. Something in my head is like, this girl, like, she had her old high school. I feel like maybe during part of her 20s, she felt like she was maybe, like, missing out on life. Maybe she, like, she was worried that she peaked in high school. Maybe. And then it seems like she decided to, like, get back up and, like, join all these things that you said. Mm -hmm. She was definitely someone who thrived on accomplishments and, like, bettering herself. Yeah. So when she got, when she graduated and didn't, felt like she didn't have anything that she was working to next, she started to feel really lost. I, I totally get that. It's feeling, like, ru- like useless and, like, just stagnant is the worst feeling ever. Mm-hmm. But this is, like, she's a real person that's, has, like, goals and aspirations and trauma. And, mm-hmm. and that's why I like to find as much as I can. Because it's important. This yeah, she was a person. She's just not like she's not just a name on a court document. Mm-hmm. Her job was stressful, and her mom said she would often come home in tears after customers were rude and rough, which is just I feel that. What are their names? Just tell us. It's fine. <laughs> I, I will track them down. <laughs> she signed up for a stress management course sponsored by her employer, which like. Mental health help in the 80s? Damn. Must go. Good employer. Mm -hmm. Maybe the customers were just that bad. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Two years later, she got a job at Air Products and Chemicals Incorporated, and she started living on her own with her cat. Ah! Unfortunately, this is when her mother said she got sick. Joan spent the next seven years in and out of hospitals due to her depression, and her parents were her emotional support, but they were 40 minutes away. Joan continued to work. She took jobs through a temp service with her church. 
She sang in the church choir at St. Paul's Catholic Church, and she would celebrate her and her parents' birthdays at local Chinese restaurants. She became a certified nurse's aide and began working at Mosser Nursing Home in Trexler Town. And this was, like, her new thing. Yeah, this, she was, this was, like, her biggest accomplishment, like, as of recent. She was so happy. This was, like, she felt like she found her purpose. Hearing all this, it's, like, you're telling me, like, the ups and downs of her entire life trying to find Mm -hmm. herself. I was incredibly lucky, and this was all in her obituary. Like someone, her her parents really did. Um, But everything I found, or mostly everything I found for her, was in her obituary that I found. I'll post like all of the links. Um, I found it on Find a Grave, which is just you can find like graves in people's obituaries. Oh wow, very helpful. As someone who like struggles with like depression, it's I'm not enough to get hospitalized, but. Maybe in the 80s, without the support that I have now, maybe I would have been, you know? Right. Especially without the knowledge, you know? Mm-hmm. And we've come a long way, and unfortunately, you know, we still have a ways to go. Mm-hmm. But we have come a long way in the mental health field. Especially with, like, depression and... Mm-hmm. Still gotta get rid of some of that, like, stig, 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 stigmatism? Yeah. Okay. This is sad. I know. This is... This, re- it's really rough to, like, really hear, like, her entire life. Yeah. Like, how she she had the same And struggles. I'm not even done yet. Oh. On her off days, Joan would show up to the nursing home and play piano for residents, which is just, she's so sweet. It's like carols on Christmas at the retirement homes. Her co-worker, Sherry Fegley, said, quote, I thought she was a very special, sweet girl full of life. She was very supportive of me. The two would go to movies, get pizza, or go dancing, and when Joan was hospitalized over Easter, Sherry brought her an Easter basket, and then later Joan gave her a card that said, thank you for being my friend, and thank you for making my day complete. Oh, if someone said that they made my day complete, I think I'd cry. You make my day complete. (laughs) 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 on the day of her murder the two spoke on the phone for about 45 minutes and they made plans for the following week sherry said joan had a hearty laugh joan made sherry a plaque that she said she'll cherish forever and she said i really miss her at work joan was always worried she wasn't as good as the other nurses her co-workers constantly assured her that like she was amazing Coworker Rachel Masters said, quote, Joni was a very smart girl, but life used to get tough for her sometimes to deal with. She just didn't think people cared for her, but they did. She was very special, very well liked there. Damn, I'm relating way too much with this girl. This is Me too. <sighs> In January 1992, she moved out of a group home and into an apartment of her own. She owned a 1981, I believe it's pronounced Chevet. Possibly. I don't know cars. Chevy? Chevy? Is that Chevy? Am I dumb? Chevet? Chevet? Chevrolet? (laughs) I don't know. S-H-E-V-E-T-T-E. I don't know. But anyway, she loved this car. She was one of the only people within... So she lived in like a row home and all of the other people 
next to her were also like, living like a town ta- like townhouses. Yeah. Okay. Um, I believe this was like a home for like people who were living with like disabilities, so they got like a little bit of help there, but like they were living on their own. Oh, so it's like it's it's assisted living. Somewhat, yeah, okay. but they're a little bit more independent than that. It's like a I don't have a. It's probably too close to our area to say, but there's something similar to <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. So she was one of the only people, like, in her strip of neighbors that owned a car. So she would drive her neighbors um, to the bank and to the grocery store. Gotta get Dolly her Band-Aids. <laughs> <laughs> her mom said she was returning to her old self, and she was really passionate about her new nursing career. No. I know. Unfortunately, it is not going to get any easier. We are going to be talking about his second victim. <sighs> Ten months later, on June 9th, 1993, 15-year-old Charlotte Schmoyer was beginning her paper route on East Gordon Street. How old was she? 15. Jesus Christ. And her, crazy enough, her paper route was on the same street that Joan lived, where she was taken. So he's doing it very, very close. He, his area was East Allentown. He didn't really stray from East Allentown. I keep forgetting it's in Allentown. Mm-hmm. That's so close. The fact that it's a town that feels comfortable for me to say scares me. Yeah. Like, when I'm reading other towns, I'm like, I think I'm saying this right, but I'm like, I know that. I've been there. Like, I've I was heard, there today. Like, I've corrected people for saying this name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, when papers weren't arriving... Her clients and, like, people who knew that she was their deliverer started to get really worried and they began searching. And once again, it was the 80s. People got newspapers and looked at them. Right. Not just stare at the blue bag (laughs) in the the yard. (laughs) A resident found her paper cart abandoned near her bike and they called the police. I don't know why, but that sentence made me really upset. It's her bike. Her bike. A kid. She couldn't drive. I mean, I can't drive, but that's different. <laughs> she couldn't legally drive. During the search, the police found Charlotte's Walkman in between two houses. There they saw finger streaks on a window, which indicated a struggle had likely occurred. Harvey Miguel abducted her, brought her to the woods. Trigger warning again. He raped her repeatedly. And then stabbed her 22 times, one being a slash to the throat. This piece of shit. Which is extreme overkill. How close were these um, victims? So, like, like time-wise? Time-wise. They were 10 months because in between Joan and Charlotte's murders, he was in that juvenile facility on the robbery charge. Oh, yeah. He was there for eight months, so he waited two months and then started again, unfortunately. He left her body partially hidden under some logs, and soon after the police found the Walkman, they also found a shoe, blood, and her battered body. The really depressing trail. Yes. Police wouldn't release if she was clothed or not, but they did say that she was missing her school sweatshirt. Like he had the school sweatshirt? They just couldn't find it. A witness reported seeing what he believed was Charlotte's killer driving around the east side reservoir around 6.30 a.m. He described the driver as a white, middle-aged Mr. Average, which, if you see pictures of him, even though he's only 17, uh, he does look Like in a full a adult older. man. I mean, it was said that he was, like, particularly strong mm-hmm. in, when he was in school by the coach. He said he was driving... 
a late 1970s or early 1980s blue four-door Chrysler that had heavy damage to the passenger side. Did, was it like... Probably an accident. No, he was a murderer. He probably wasn't really a good driver. Probably not. I'm going to link this YouTube video because it was a little helpful for information too, but in the comments of this YouTube video, this man named uh, Thomas Matthias commented... Matthias? or Ma- I think it was Matthias because it was M-A-T-I-A-S. Okay. He commented and said that he grew up in Allentown, knew Harvey Miguel and his stepbrother, and he said to a friend when this information came out about the blue four-door with the damage, he said to a friend, jokingly, what if that's Harvey? Absolutely no idea that it actually was him. He also said that their birthdays were near each other, so they would celebrate together, which is just, like, crazy. That's great. I mean, who knows if this is... Accurate. Accurate and completely true. It was just a YouTube comment, but I saw it and I thought it was crazy, so I wanted to just put it in here. There are definitely people who use that as, like, an icebreaker. Unfortunately. Like... In, like, a conversation, like, hey, I knew so-and-so serial killer. I went to elementary school with them. Oh, yeah. After Charlotte's murder, Harvey Miguel was pulled over for speeding, but he only received a speeding ticket because at the time they had no idea who they were looking for. And, like, the car description wasn't out? Nope, not yet. Okay. Damn. I want to talk about Charlotte Schmoyer a little bit. I did find a lot for her. Um, I found a newspaper article... That had a lot of, of information about her. 15 years old is just... Charlotte Marie Schmoyer was born on November 8th, 1977 to Jean and Karen Schmoyer. She grew up in Allentown at 432 Oswego Street as an only child until when she was about, I believe, like 11 or 12. Her little brother, uh, Bill, and her little sister, Andrea, were born. Her mom said she was like a second mom and never minded helping with them. And her grandmother also lived with the family. She made the Deerriff swim team as a freshman and coached beginners at Harrison Morton Middle. She was disappointed that she didn't score enough points for her varsity letter, which is, you know, really sad. I I really hope she gets that. Oh, yeah. Like, at her, like... If... I want to find out if, like, her anyone has bought her her varsity jacket, because I will. I don't have money, but I will buy it for her. She was on the color guard, and next year she was going to be a majorette. She also did, did activities with the Emmaus UCC youth group. What's, is it a certain church, or is it? Uh, Catholic. Okay, it's yeah, I don't. Emmaus United Church of Christ, I believe oh, it's called. I think my friends went there. Oh my god. Um... This is fine. It's really close. That's really, really close. Her and her mom were extremely close, and her mom said she was, like, my best friend. Charlotte struggled in school due to a learning disability that affected her hand-eye coordination and her ability to compute information. But in the last few years, she had been making really good progress her grades were improving, and teachers said she was blossoming. It seems like with both of these victims, they both, like, dealt with struggle in life and overcame it. And he just ruined it. Kicked all of that work into the dirt, and... He is a disgusting little creature. He's a little gremlin. little gremlin. He's a goblin. Yeah. Ugly... Her mom said she wasn't aces at school, but she was trying. 
and she had even won a scholarship for fundamentals in English. She worked at Dorney Park over the summer. Oh my, I went there for many years growing up. I've spent hundreds. I've never been to Dorney. We need to go to Dorney. <laughs> I don't have the money for Dorney. <laughs> we have time. But I've spent a lot of time at Dorney growing up. Mm-hmm. And just hearing that is like... I know. So she loved working at Dorney Park, but they changed their age requirements for how old you needed to be to work there. So instead, she got her paper job, her paper root job at Morning Call. Damn she it, was Dorney, don't change your age. <laughs> I know. It's like one of those things where it's like... The what ifs. If only... Mm-hmm. She was just still working at Dorney. Yeah. She was saving money to buy her varsity jacket and to go on a school trip with the band. She was a band kid. <laughs> she, I know. At church, she was a greeter and an alco- ac- acolyte. What is that? Like a... I don't know what the word is for it, but it's like... you Like a, like a partnership. Like you're a part of something. Like a representation almost, I think. All right, cool. I'm not quite sure. She did the annual church plays, and thankfully all of them were recorded, and her parents say they love to rewatch them. Oh. Her funeral was held the following Monday, and her parents asked that instead of flowers, people to donate to the scholarship fund at Deeriff in, like, in name of Charlotte. Some of this, like, I feel like all of this is really forward-thinking, these parents are amazing. These parents are amazing. Like, this was not in the 80s. I refuse. I know. <laughs> Back to the piece of shit named Harvey. His next crime was on June 17th, 1993, when he burglarized the home of a couple who was away on vacation. I have no idea what he took, and that's kind of just it. Yeah, I hope, I'm glad there's no one there. <sighs> Unfortunately, we come to his third victim. On July 14th, 1993, just a month after Charlotte's murder, Harvey Miguel broke into the home of 47-year-old Jessica Jean Fontley while her family was still sleeping. Uh, Trigger warning. He brutally raped her several times and then he strangled her and left her in the living room. While her family was in the house. Yeah. It's horrific. I... Unfortunately, was not able to find a whole lot of information on her. I couldn't even find, like, her birthday. No, I found her birthday, but I couldn't find her parents' names um, or really much about her life. And I think her family really wanted to keep things private. How, how old was she? She was 47. So I think her... He really had, like, a big age he range. He did not care. But Jessica was a grandmother and she had four kids She was born on May 8th, 1946. We are going to be talking about Harvey's fourth victim. And this is a massive trigger warning because it involves the sexual assault of a young child. Very young. I was told beforehand, so I wouldn't. I'm not going to go into super detail or anything, but if you don't want to hear about that, just skip ahead a little bit. It'll be over soon. Now, Harvey Miguel stalked her mother for a few days before breaking into her home with her five-year-old daughter. When Harvey Miguel saw that the mother was in bed with her boyfriend, he, again, trigger warning, went into the five-year-old's room and raped her. He choked her, assumed that she had died, and left her for dead. Thankfully, 
she survived the attack. I hesitate to even say like luckily because the trauma after that, I'm, I can't even imagine it. Something in my head is just hoping that maybe her age, but kids are intuitive. Unfortunately, and they're trauma smart. sticks, especially at that age. Either they'll grow like to forget it or it'll stick with them for mm -hmm. life. It'll be like a core memory in there. Something like, like this is what can very often cause people to have DID, uh, dissociative identity disorder, because it's a trauma response and it's the body and the brain's way of trying to protect the child from the trauma that happened. Piece of um, shit. Goblin. We're going to move off of his fourth victim yep. and onto his last victim, who was only an attempt because. Denise Sam Callie is a motherfucking badass. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. On June 28th, 1993, this was in between the murders of Charlotte and Jessica. Okay. Harvey Miguel broke in, into Denise Sam Callie's home. She lived on East Highland Street in Allentown. She was home alone and her husband was away. Trigger warning. He attempted to rape her, but she broke free and ran outside. During the attack, Denise bit his arm and left a mark. This was later used as evidence against him. Yes. Badass. And it doesn't end there. I hope she bit a chunk out. Me too. <laughs> I hope he cried. Yes. She ran outside and Harvey Miguel followed her. When he was unsuccessful at subduing her, he gave up and fled back into the house and out the back door. He gave up? Mm-hmm. Thank God, but, like... Sort of. Okay. Now, Denise, again, an absolute badass. She calls police, tells them everything that happened. They found a kitchen knife with a napkin wrapped around the handle that... The kitchen knife belonged to Denise, but he likely just took it from her kitchen because... And, like, wrapped the paper towel to These murders were planned, but he didn't bring weapons with he him. He was an improvised... Yes. Which is why his method is so varied yeah he strangled t three blunt objects some of them and stabbed no yeah the brick yeah he the... he did a multiple of methods which is unusual i hate saying the brick so casually it's i know just it's crazy brutal just freaking gremlin I know. that was a good word for it on july 19th 1993 someone likely Harvey Miguel, attempted to break into Denise's house again, but they set off her newly installed home security alarm. She contacted police who offered to stay with her at the house, and they also asked to use her as bait because they were assuming that Harvey would return again to try and rape and kill her because he was dead set on her now. He had come back twice. Mm -hmm. She said yes because she's a badass. <laughs> So police staked out at her home, and sure enough, the little gremlin showed up. Police attempted to arrest him, but he fired shots back, and a shootout between him and Officer Brian Lewis took place, which left Harvey Miguel wounded. Why did this man have a gun? I know, like, America, know. freedom to bear arms, right to bear arms, but, like, this man is a convicted... Like, he, he's only been convicted of, like, like theft and stuff. But... I know, but he should not have access to that. He fled to Lehigh Valley Hospital, where police tracked him to, and he was arrested on July 31st, 1993. 
Uh, Lehigh County Sheriff Joe Hanna, who knew Denise since childhood, said, quote, She was always tenacious and strong-willed. It wasn't surprising to me that she stood tall. <laughs> because a lot of people were surprised that she was, like, willing to be the bait. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were like, I don't know if she can actually do it. But the sheriff was like, I never doubted her for a second. If she says it, she can do it. Mm-hmm. Actualize. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the trial. In March 1994, Harvey Miguel pled guilty to raping Denise and attempted murder on Officer Lewis. For that, he was sentenced to 40 to 80 years. Oh, this is nice. Mm-hmm. Lots of years. He has a shit ton of years. I think it's like almost 200. Thank God. Plus, we'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, they had three pieces of his DNA linking him to all three murders. Snaps. He was convicted on November 14th, 1994. He was 17 at the time of Joan Burghardt's murder, but he was 18 during Jessica's murder and he was 19 during his conviction. He was sentenced to three life sentences with the death penalty in all three. That changes a little bit later on, though. It's nice to know that the justice system is not failing us in this case. In this case, it did a good job. Yeah. In April 1995, he was convicted of raping the five-year-old girl and was sentenced to 57 years that were added on to his sentences. In June of 2001, Lehigh County Judge Edward Reedman upheld the murder conviction but took the death penalty off for Schmoyer and Burkhart's murders because he was 17 when he committed them. So they were being quite fair about his age. They were charging him as a minor. Mm-hmm. Though I thought He that... was charged as, as an adult for Jessica's murder, though. Okay, because I thought that, at least now, I thought that Pennsylvania will charge murderers even if they're children as full, full adults. I think, it go, I think it depends case to case, and I'm not, like, 100% sure, so don't quote me on it, but... But he still has a crap ton of years, so... <clears throat> oh, yeah, he's, he's, in, he's there forever. In December 2004, the PA Supreme Court confirmed that he is still going to get the death penalty for Jessica Fontley's murder because he was 18 at the time. Ultimately, he received life for Charlotte Schmoyer's murder... 35 to life for the murder of Joan Burkhardt because he was 17. And he received the death penalty for the murder of Jessica Fontley. He received 57 years for the five-year-old's rape and he was scheduled to die by lethal injection on April 4th, 2006. However, it was stayed. He is still alive and still in prison. Hope he's rotting there. (sighs) Me too. In prison, he found Islam, which... I don't have much more to talk about it. I just... Some people find it's just religion. information. If it helps him be a better person, I don't think there's hope for him. And but he has, like... If it helps him be not shitty, cool. Yeah. He's still shitty, though. That doesn't that, that doesn't mean he deserves to be, like, forgiven. Oh, God, no. In 2012, he waived his right to appeal to Charlotte Schmoyer's murder conviction. And in 2019, a PA judge told him he should consider donating his brain to science. Because apparently you can learn a lot from him. Damn. Because he was so young, I think. Mm. They wanted to kind of see, like, why did he do all of this? Oh, yeah, so, like, they could see, like, Because he never really gave a motive. It was just, like, I wanted to. That's terrifying. It's terrifying to have a motive, but it's just... Even, it's like, the unknown is scarier than, like, Mm -hmm. almost... There's certain cases, but... 
I want to talk about Denise and her life because she was a badass and I love her. She was born in 1965 to Samuel and Bernice Perietta Sam. So her dad's name was Samuel Sam, which I think is kind of funny. <laughs> Samuel Sam. <laughs> She was born and raised in Allentown with her brother George and sister Audrey, and she attended Deerup High School and then went on to get her bachelor's degree in business administration from Muhlenberg College. I've heard of that. I almost went to Muhlenberg. Oh, that's why I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah, that was like one of the schools I was considering. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she married her husband, John N. Callie, and they co-owned J&J Luxury Transportation Main Street Leasing, and Clinton Rachel Enterprises. Damn. So she was a businesswoman. A strong, independent businesswoman. Girl boss. Gaslight Kiki, girl boss. <laughs> she was an active member in transportation and travel business, and she was involved with Eastern Pennsylvania Travel Association and SKAL International Travel Association, where she was the treasurer. People said she had a passion for life, and she saw the good in everything. She had a unique personality, and she was generous, loyal, and caring. And people described her as a crusader for the underdogs. She had two dogs named Topper and Lily that she just absolutely adored. And she would also feed and take care of the neighborhood feral cats. Heck yeah. She paid to have them all spayed and she would set up heated shelters in the winter for them. That's amazing. It's, she's such a good because, person. like, stray cats is such a bad thing for, like... Especially in this area, stray oh, yeah. cats are very common. In, like, this what area of Pennsylvania through, from, like, Allentown, Emmaus... Yeah. Like, it's one, someone in my neighborhood feeds cats, and sometimes it's annoying because then they're all over the streets. It's cute, but, like... <laughs> but I'll be outside at night, and I'll hear them getting into fights and shit, and it literally <laughs> sounds like the cartoon, like... <laughs> and then there was one night I was walking my dog, and I heard a cat, like, two cats get into a fight, and I shit you not, they hit, like, a metal trash can. Like, it was straight out of a cartoon. Like Tom and Jerry. Literally. <laughs> it's great that she got them all spayed because... Oh, I know. Like, the growing, like, people who feed cats just so they won't starve is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, no one wants to see, like, such adorable animals die. Right. But you can't have them multiplying at mass and rates. And they do. I think my neighbor had a couple spayed, too, but it's expensive, so mm -hmm. she, you know... Like, cats get around... Yeah. <laughs> Fucking whore. <laughs> she loved gardening, dancing, and dressing classy, and her husband said she lit up any room she walked into. Oh. After her attack, Denise did an interview with Morning Call in 2012 where she said, quote, I sleep with my husband, two dogs, and a gun, but I'm alive, healthy, and happy. When you live through your worst nightmare, you appreciate the small things. However, it takes a lot of work to get through the trauma. I went through a lot of numbness, shock, and horror before I reached this state. She was angry that the death sentence appeals took so long, and she was also angry that some of them were revoked. She said, quote, There is no doubt in anyone's mind Harvey Robinson is a violent serial killer. If we abolish the death sentence, does he serve his sentence in prison with the rest of the prisoners? It is not fair for anyone to be subjected to Robinson. He lies in wait to kill again. That's 
really well said. It is. I have, like, my reservations about the death sentence. Mm-hmm. But the way she, as a, as a person who was, like, who was a victim and had to watch that sentence get carried out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like I said in the last episode, I'm very iffy. I feel differently case to case. Mm-hmm. Personally, in this case, I am glad that one death conviction was held up because... I truly don't think there's any change for him. Specifically, sexual assault cases are the ones where I'm most like, this person needs to. Right. Like, this person needs, not person, this creature (laughs) needs to answer for their crimes. Her husband said she never shied away about talking about her trauma. Quote, she thought anything she said could help another woman or help another person in that kind of scenario. Like, she, anything that she could do to help, it meant the world to her. I'm saying it again. This is in the 90s now, but it sounds like it's in, like, now. (laughs) I know. So forward thinking. Talk about your trauma. Let people know. (laughs) Awareness. He said her legacy isn't her trauma, but how she rose above it. Which is... This girl. Allentown Sheriff and friend Joe Hanna said, quote, I don't know anyone who wanted to be remembered for such a dark event in their life. But the reality of it is that she stood tall and showed you maybe and showed you that you may be a victim, but you can overcome that victimizing with courage. She was the epitome of that courage. Wow, what a what a woman. Unfortunately, she did not out, outlive the creature that attacked her like she had hoped. She passed away peacefully at age 65 on January 15th, 2021 at home. She and John were married for 35 years. And in a phone interview following her passing, her husband John said, quote, Her dogs are right here now. Her main dog is saddened beyond description. He's in a 140-pound schnauzer named Topper. Since he was a little baby of 20 pounds, he's been sleeping with her on top. Sorry, he's been sleeping on top of her. <laughs> I started tearing up. <laughs> um, so, um, she died on my birthday. When I wrote that date, I was like, I feel like this date is something I know. That is my birthday. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. Last year, too. Last year. That man is still alive. He's 47 now, oh. I believe. I know. Unfortunately, I feel like I, you know, this is a podcast and I'm supposed to talk, but, like, I have no words for this case for so many reasons, like... It's it uh, yeah I didn't I didn't get I didn't have good commentary at all it was just just <laughs> it's one of it's one of those ones that especially for us this is so close that like we know this town it's it's a different experience hearing a case where you can like like I was in Allentown today and I could have driven past their houses and like I grew that, up going to Dorney one of my one of my old elementary school teachers worked at the crab shack he i'm i'm very glad he is behind bars i don't know if he has another date scheduled for his execution honestly i hope it's soon i hope he doesn't outlive her by long i sure hope so she she deserves better and 65 is such a young age to go it is especially now especially now I, i hope it wasn't like covid related or anything I don't believe so. I didn't find anything. It seemed pretty 
just like, natural causes. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, obviously doesn't make it easy. Yeah. But sometimes it's a little bit easier. Well, follow us on Instagram and Twitter because Ooh. I just made those. We have an Instagram now? I know. I forgot to even tell Emily. This is you're finding out now. Damn, look at this. I'm getting uh, caught up with you guys. <laughs> I made us an Instagram. At Creatures Crime. That is the handle for both Twitter and Instagram. Go check us out. There isn't anything up yet, but I'm going to... Morbid, I'm sorry. I'm going to openly copy you. I'm probably going to post pictures of... Um, the victims that I could find. Unfortunately, there's no pictures of Jessica, um, but there are pictures of Charlotte and Joan and Denise, and I want to put them up there for you guys to see. And a picture of Harvey, just so you know what this little gremlin looks like. Ugh. Ash is good at technology. I am not. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you join us next week. Have a great day, you wonderful humans. Be human.